0: Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. off. We have a liftoff. Space and biology. We finally have the second episode in our sub-series on this topic. Dorit Donoviel is the director of the Translational Research Institute for Space Health, or TRISH. TRISH is an institute that's cooperating with NASA and is conducting a fascinating range of research topics regarding human health in space. Our discussions touch on many topics, ranging from challenges to human physiology and microgravity, all the way to the question of whether we can use gene editing to adapt ourselves to the space environment. Enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by NanoAvionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I am an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast and we'll also put that link in the episode notes and lastly you can follow us on twitter at podcast underscore space hey space enthusiasts welcome back for another episode of the space business podcast I'm very excited because this is actually the second episode in our new sub series on space bio and very happy to have my guest here today uh Dorit Donoville who is the executive director of the uh, Translational Research Institute for Space Health, or because that's very long, also known by its acronym, Trish. Welcome to it.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Right. And so why don't we start off uh, kind of, could you tell us what, what Trish is, what Trish Das, as many of our listeners may not know yet.
1: Yeah, thanks. So we were established through a cooperative agreement, which is a partnership with the NASA Human Research Program. So NASA recognized that it's a very uh, engineering-focused organization, and it needed uh, the access into academia and industry uh, in ways that the government itself has a hard time penetrating, and in particular, in areas of biomedical research and medicine. Um, So actually, where we're based uh, at Baylor College of Medicine, uh, we've held a partnership with the government since the 60s, a really long time, helping Johnson Space Center with its early program and getting humans ready to go to space. So the medical world has worked very closely with the space program. So what Trish is, is actually a virtual institute. It's a consortium of Baylor College of Medicine. We're based here in Houston at Baylor College of Medicine, but we have uh, faculty and staff working at MIT and Caltech. So it's those three institutions our job is nothing short of searching the world for innovations that can keep humans healthy and performing well in deep space missions.
0: Okay. So so your focus is on what you just mentioned, like staying healthy in space, or is there also like an element of sort of, there's obviously like a lot of experiments, I think something like 700 bio-related experiments we've run on the shuttle, on the space station that can have benefits on Earth. Is that also something you're looking at or is that
1: separate? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the money that comes from NASA... Um, really is focused on operationally um, mm-hmm. uh, determined projects. In other words, really keeping humans healthy in space. And that is uh, it, it applies to commercial astronauts, private people that will go to space, people who will eventually work in space, not just governmental astronauts. Um, however, we all know from from decades and decades of space research that anytime you set the bar so high that you're trying to do health care in an environment where healthcare is so difficult, um, you are going to get benefits for Um, for Earth as well. So I can start by the many things that that the space program has brought forward for our, you know, benefit. But I'll I'll focus just on the biomedical side of things. You know, medical imaging, the MRI capabilities, a lot of the the insulin pump, for example, was a result of the space program. A lot of material sciences that are used in medical devices came from the space program. Um, The home gym, uh, the, uh, let's see, the water purifiers. I mean, there's just it just the list just goes on and on and nasa actually publishes every year um offs if people are interested and there's a whole section on medical and biomedical that just focuses on all the space innovations that have had benefits for earth as well
0: yeah that's a that's a really great valid point you mentioning that sort of like space is so hard so if you solve the problem there it's then very often it's something that you can use i guess on earth as well and i guess sort of one obvious example i even me as a non-specialist I can remember is i guess you know one thing that happens to the human body when you go to microgravity is like you're 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 your bones start dissolving, right? And and I guess, that you know, then you have to kind of counteract that in space. And um, well, we have osteoporosis on Earth as well, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so what's very, very compelling about the space, I, I, I look at it as a laboratory to understand human physiology and disease in a whole new way that we cannot do on Earth. It's unique. So I'm in my heart of hearts, I'm a biologist, and I try to understand how organisms adapt to environments. And so what's unique about space is that on Earth when you're studying a disease process, you, you're studying it kind of late. The train wrecks already happened. So it's really hard to tell exactly what the early processes were, at the early the beginnings of the disease processes at a point where you can actually reverse them and intervene and prevent the disease from happening. By the time you treat, it's too late. The damage has been done. Very hard to reverse disease processes. Whereas in space, what you're doing is you're taking fairly healthy individuals, okay? And And now you are not only putting them in an environment that's accelerating every single disease process that you can imagine, the entire body is affected. You've got the heart being affected, the bones, the muscles, the brain, you know, the aging of the cells, the the vestibular system, the everything that you can imagine, the eyes, the everything in your body changes in space. And not only does it change in space, starting with a healthy person. Right. So you could study the early processes of these changes. It's reversible. Okay, that's number one. And it's on a fast time scale. So you don't have to wait for a decade for osteoporosis or cardiovascular disease to happen on Earth to study it. You can have it you can study it in a matter of weeks and months, which means that it's an accelerated laboratory to understand human physiology and how to reverse some of the changes that we believe are happening in space quicker and resemble what's happening on Earth in certain disease processes.
0: And so off the various, you know, impacts of the space environment on the human body, you mentioned there, like in the heart, the bones, the muscles, and I guess there's many others. Is there sort of like, I guess there's probably some sort of ranking, like what what are you, what are people most concerned about with astronaut health?
1: It's a a great question. Um, So in terms of humans in space, let's just not even say astronauts, just humans in space in general, it depends on where you are. Okay. So if you are in low Earth orbit and you're, you're able to come back to Earth, you know, immediately if you have a medical situation, the concern up there a little less than than if you were to going to go to the moon for example or or Mars or other deep space destinations that take you outside the protection of our atmosphere from space radiation protection is what I'm referring to but also the ability to give you medical care it's very different depending on where you are so for example if you're if you're just going across the street to visit your neighbor you don't necessarily need to bring water and all your medical kit and your medications with you right but if you're going you know across the country or you're going to another nation, now you have to bring with you everything that you need to survive, right? So, so it becomes a different story. In terms of the concerns for the human body in zero gravity, and and you can argue about the minuscule amount of gravity, but it's in effect close enough to zero. The concern that I have as a biologist and having worked in this field for over 15 years is really around what's happening to the brain and the eyes. And this has been described as the spaceflight-associated neuroocular syndrome. So it's happening to a majority of people who go to space and and it's worse the longer you stay up there. What we see is a change in the distribution of fluid and we believe that there's an increase in pressure on the brain. And that is not 100% reversed when astronauts come back to Earth. So there's almost like a new set point that happens The longer you're in space, the more your brain adapts in a way that may not go back to normal. And while astronauts are incredibly smart, capable people... um, and you may not even be able to tell if they have a loss of IQ points, say, for example, or 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 what they call a space stupid or a space fog. Another term that has been described as a mental viscosity, which I think is quite humorous. Um, they, there is a concern about long term health in terms of their brains. And there's also an effect on the visual system, which, as you know, is connected to the brain. It's all one part with the brain.
0: And so um, thank you for bringing up this and uh, because I was going to ask you about the, uh, the, the eye Related uh, issues, and I didn't remember the name. So thank you for mentioning it. So for that, by the way, because some of the other things we've mentioned, like you know the bone loss and the muscle loss, we have the pretty um, simple countermeasures, right? And We just make them work out. Basically, is is there a countermeasure for the for the for the eye issues? No the brain issues.
1: No, there isn't. Hmm. Um, and so uh, people will will uh, talk. People talk about uh, creating uh, a fluid unloading of the brain. So. What what the Russians have done for many years is get into what what they call lower body negative pressure or Chibis suits, and they've been doing it for years without even knowing exactly what it was causing. Uh, but uh, just a uh, uh, essentially, they are kind of vacuum pants that pull the fluid away from the head and. Uh, historically anecdotally um, a lot of uh, astronauts and and particularly cosmonauts would get into these lower body negative pressure suits a few hours before they're about to go on a spacewalk to clear their head essentially and so um, but they're very uncomfortable and you can't do anything with them and you have to sit in them for hours so one thing that we've considered is maybe making some of these sleeping garments um, to put astronauts in these things and suck the fluids away from the head for a period of time it's it's not been widely accepted because it's just such a pain you can't really do a whole hell of a lot and there's an en- engineering involved the other is is people have considered getting into a short arm centrifuge where um, on an end of a space station you can spin people and create a little bit of a, a, um, a gravitational poles essentially artificially
0: so basically that's something like a like a clinostat or a random positioning machine type thing that's funny. Well, you don't want somebody... random
1: positioning you just want a <laughs> yeah. to fluids away from the head yeah Yeah. yeah.
0: okay so yeah i I swear like some 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 sometime recently somebody showed me some picture from the 60s where they actually put some animals like rabbits on like random positioning machines and i felt i felt so bad but anyway uh, does that does that mean though so if there's no it doesn't sound like for example, like this that, that there's very clear countermeasures i mean does that in your mind mean that if we engage in very long like much longer space exploration like going to mars do we just have to suck it up and pay for like artificial gravity
1: well people have talked about artificial gravity it's it it's a very difficult engineering problem. It's probably doable, but it—it nobody seems to want to actually invest the money in the infrastructure it would take to test it. And then we don't really know exactly what is minimum required that would be sufficient. Like, for example, people are wondering whether a sixth gravity on the moon would be sufficient to keep you from having mm-hmm. that syndrome. So we're gonna go to the moon and see, do people still develop this, this syndrome when they're, you know, uh, existing on 1,6 G? Mars has an even stronger gravitational field. Um, so three eighths. And so perhaps, perhaps that's sufficient as well. We just don't know the answer to that. Um, But I, I, you know, I want to say that what's interesting about this syndrome is that it's it's forcing us to look at how the body regulates fluid and pressures in the head, which have great implications for conditions here on Earth. For example, people with hydrocephalus, babies with hydrocephalus. Um, we are actually looking at a healthy individual that's now um, experiencing an increase in pressure on the brain, and if 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 we're able to figure out how to control that, we may be able to prevent other conditions like hydrocephalus or idiopathic intracranial hypertension or brain pressure due to trauma um, in ways that we cannot assess today because we're looking at patients that have already like exhibited the condition and we can't really reverse them uh, as easily.
0: It it sounds fascinating and like how there's always inevitably we're going to be some you know interesting use cases uh, back here on earth. Is that I I just have to the venture capitalist in me has to ask you this question Like, like you you're like, a, like you described it as a virtual institute. I mean, is there any sort of like, you know, tech transfer licensing uh, sure. going on?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So as you can imagine, the government's funding for a lot of the really out of the box innovations that we have to uh, de-risk uh, is is doesn't go as far as one would need in order to take a product to market. So we never want to invest in a technology uh, if we can help it unless we know that there's going to be investors on the back end so that when we are done With a particular project that we can soft land it or hand it over. Uh, Land it into an investor's lap. So we often talk to investors. They may bring us ideas or projects or uh, uh, you know groups that are working on a on a particular technology that's too early for them that requires some proof of concept. That's a real sweet spot for us because our job we feel is to kind of de-risk very new ways of approaching some of the health problems so that they become investable or follow-on investors or be bought out by larger companies.
0: And so this is something that it sounds like this has, has already happened. Like you have, you know, examples of that.
1: Yeah, we do. We do. In fact, uh, uh, the very earliest uh, company that I got involved with uh, is a, a medical food a product called Enterade. And I remember it was a group from University of Florida. They still had it in, in a glass bottle and it tasted terrible. And it was... Uh, they were still trying to, you know, optimize the taste, and I made all of my uh, testers, like all of my advisors, who looked at the data showing that this product can protect your gut from the effects of radiation. Uh, I made them all drink it, and it had lab tape on it, you know. And I got out the crystal and I made them drink it, and that was a long time ago. And now it's a product I buy it all the time. It's on Amazon. Uh, the company's gone through several rounds of financing. They actually made lots of deals with uh, with big companies. And so that is really satisfying to me that I actually gave them their very first investment. I believe them them. And, and my board, the board that looked at this actually gave them kind of a stamp of approval. And uh, that really helped them sort of look more serious to investors.
0: Okay, terrific. And so, okay, closing the bracket on on sort of the the tech transfer, coming back to what we're talking about before, sort of like what happens to to humans, human physiology and in space, right? And as you correctly point, it out sort of a few minutes ago, it kind of depends where you are, right? And then we started, I think, talking about sort of um, the most um, applicable use case right now, which is humans probably on inter- the International Space Station or in like lower of Orbit. And we talked about, you know, the brain and the eye syndrome and, and all of this. But let's talk about some of the other locations. So, you know, hopefully we will put humans again on the lunar surface. How does that complicate things? And then right. on to Mars as well.
1: Yeah. So um, thanks for that. I, it's, it's what I live for. I, I love thinking about this stuff because I find biological beings so incredibly adaptable. The fact that we can adapt to any environment we, you put us in and we have the, if our bodies can't do it quickly enough, we have the ingenuity to engineer the environment so that we can survive, unlike other organism, organisms organisms who, who may take decades or hundreds of millions of years to adapt to an environment, right? So that is uh, that is really a fun thing for a biologist to think about. So once we leave low Earth orbit and we leave the protection of our atmosphere and the magnetosphere, we are now um, exposed to space radiation. And they're there's at least two kinds of space radiation that we would worry about. There are you know, many kinds of space radiation, but the big ones that we worry about are protons. Uh, that's the majority of galactic cosmic rays, but also they are emitted by solar storms from the sun, okay? Now, protons can, can kill you, because it's usually a massive dose from the sun. The good news is, is, protons are just stripped hydrogen ions, which means that they're they don't have a lot of mass. So you can shield for them fairly effectively, um, and and we can shield astronauts as long as we have enough of a warning of a solar storm coming. Um, then we could get them into into uh prote- protection into a habitat now the radiation that i'm most worried about though is the galactic cosmic rays so That comes from all kinds of celestial events, you know, stars bursting, you know, planets, you know, emitting radiation, suns uh, uh, breaking up, and what what the problem is with those is that it's it's every element in the periodic table, some of which are quite heavy particles, and they're all moving at relativistic speed, and so in order to shield them, you need a ton of material, either that or a magnetic field around you, which Uh, requires such incredible engineering and so much power that right now we're not there yet. We cannot recreate the magnetic field that our Earth has very easily, okay? People think about it, talk about it, but it's not been done. So that means that to protect from galactic cosmic rays, you have to probably go very deep down underground Mm. on the lunar surface. If you do not do that, if you just live in a regular habitat, when I say regular, I don't know, maybe a foot of aluminum or or some other material as, as uh, you're shielding, you actually create more of a problem for a human because these, these materials are not sufficient to block all these heavy particles. And as they come through, they become fractionated. So now instead of a single particle hitting your DNA, You've got multiple particles hitting your DNA and that becomes more of a problem. So the issue with that is the longer you are on the lunar surface, not deep underground, protected from galactic cosmic rays, the more likely you're going to accumulate damage to the body. OK, so sustainable presence on the lunar surface is going to require going underground Um It's or building sufficient materials to protect humans on the lunar surface. The other issue we have with the the moon is that the partial gravity, right? So we know that we need the exercise um, to remain healthy in zero gravity in low Earth orbit. On the lunar surface, you're going to be exposed to roughly a sixth of gravitational forces on Earth. We actually don't think it's sufficient to keep you healthy. So we'll probably have to keep up the exercise regimens that we currently do in zero
0: Okay, I understood. And then, then also, like, maybe 10 minutes ago, when we were talking about the various locations, you're we making this comparison that like, if you go to your neighbor, you're probably not taking like, you know, luggage along. But if you go like somewhere further, you, the further you go, the more stuff you take along, right? So also, can you talk a little bit about the differences of sort of like, you know, what do we equip our astronauts, whether professional or well, non-professional astronauts? Like, what should they take along? What's the difference between like, again, lower of orbit and the moon in terms of like, you know, Medication or medical equipment that we can take along, and then I guess the other thing is sort of the possibility of medical treatment as well.
1: Yeah, so even common medical events like an infection, a fall, um, you know, a uh, an asthma attack become much more catastrophic in space uh, because the individual who is sick may or may not have access to the right medication. Um, And if there's complications that develop from a very simple condition because the body itself is compromised, then it becomes a a life-threatening and a mission-threatening event. So in all cases, we wanna do prevention. So monitoring crews continuously and determining when something starts to go into a pathological state, as opposed to just an adaptive state, is absolutely key. So you're you you you're exactly right. Um, when we're in Earth orbit, if there's a medical emergency, we bring that crew member back. Within nine hours, they're in definitive medical care. And that's what we typically do. We will treat some things in space. We have the capability of doing that because the space station has been there for a long time. It's pretty well equipped. But for the most part, if it's a serious medical event, they're coming back. The lunar surface is a Different story. It's not that simple. It's roughly three days by the time you decide it's it's bad enough to take a, a crew member back. It's three days, and so and then do you leave the rest of the crew there? Does everybody come back? It becomes a logistical nightmare. So on the lunar surface, we're definitely going to be more uh, uh, thinking ahead in terms of what we need to bring with us because we will have to treat if there is a medical emergency. So. Um, you know and then and then the supply of materials remember every every kilogram you take up i think it's something like 10,000 dollars in fuel or more so you have to be thinking about the medical kit being very um thoughtfully constructed. Everything has to be miniaturized. The astronauts themselves have to be well-trained and and on all the possible medical scenarios. Even if you take a medical crew with you that's well-trained, it could be that that crew member will get sick and now you've got a geologist having to do medical care. So all those things become kind of forcing functions to do medical innovations and in how you provide definitive care in a preventative manner whenever possible, but also just in time training, medical training for non-medical personnels. Now that transfers really well to the home and in non-traditional settings where healthcare needs to be provided going forward.
0: And, and it kind of leads to, I guess it also involves some interesting tech innovations, right? Because I assume sort of like autonomous surgery robots or like you know telehealth that all can come into play here.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, you know, people talk about robotic surgery. Um, I, uh, nobody's gonna be doing surgery in space if they can help it. We're gonna try to minimize the need to do any kind of interventional surgery. It's all about prevention and, and non-invasive ways of treating whenever possible. We, we did invest a little bit in, in, in surgical capabilities, but it's gonna be the last resort. Uh, honestly, in space, it's very difficult to maintain a sterile field, and you know, think about all of the eventualities. How do you even how do you even stabilize a patient after surgery?
0: Yeah, it, it always it always reminds me of one of my sort of favorite exploration slash medical stories, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which was this like Soviet chief medical officer at their Antarctic station, and he had to take out his own appendix because he was the only qualified. <laughs> surgeon on the station yeah.
1: can you imagine doing it in 0g or you know in a place where uh yeah you were re- resource limited no it's uh it's not something you we wanna we want to consider I mean so it's all about prevention it's all about really planning for every eventuality so Let's talk about going out beyond the lunar surface because for me then that becomes a lot more exciting. Um, in fact I am I am pitching a hibernation XPRIZE this year. We'll see if XPRIZE goes along with it. But in order to go to Mars, we are so resource limited in terms of how much habitable volume we have for the crew members over that long duration, how much food we need to bring, how much water and air, everything has to be recycled. Um, you know, and so it's so the The less you need to bring, the better, not just for feasibility of that, but also if you consider Going beyond Mars, right? If we do want to explore the very, the very far reaches of our solar system, we're gonna have to put people into hibernation. So I love to think about this because I I believe that humans probably could hibernate. We put people into medical hibernation today for medical reasons. It's in a controlled yeah. environment, but I actually think that it's absolutely doable to do a Uh, outside the hospital setting, human hibernation. So I, I love that concept because if you think about it, when you cool things down, when you reduce metabolic rate, you may actually be protecting the body from the radiation effects, from the stressors of the zero g, because all the catabolic processes—the ones that are breaking down the body—are slowed down. So um, there's a there's a nice example. Patients undergoing chemotherapy, for example, will uh, there's these penguin caps that they could wear. It's basically chills their heads, their hair doesn't fall out. So it's mm. it's a lowering of the of the of the metabolic rate of the tissues Um, so it's an interesting paradigm to think about as one considers a real far destination someday
0: yeah let's face it it's probably like more than half of the science fiction novels have these like kind of cold sleep and hibernation like they all have different names right so i must say from sort of uh, i'm sure from a regulatory point of view sort of getting the clinical trial approvals will be Will be interesting it's, for
1: this one. It's actually not tr- uh, my institute, Trish, has funded uh, a couple of studies and they're ongoing right now. It was not a problem
0: on humans or on animals or humans on humans. You know, interesting. Mm-hmm. I was, I must admit, I was not aware. So, so, so we've been kind of talking, we've been talking so much about all of the terrible things that happen to you know human ph- physiology in space. It's actually something positive that happens as well.
1: Yeah, um, sure. So, for example, um, uh, Well, the mental effect, right? The mental effect of being in space. I mean, it could be positive or negative. Some people will say, first of all, seeing the earth from space um, has this, uh, it's been coined the overview effect where you feel Mm -hmm. like we're all one. We're all one on this beautiful planet. And we've been given this amazing, precious resource to, to take care of, right? Um, a lot of people have spoken about that who have been to space. Uh, but as you move further and further away from Earth, we do worry about the behavioral disconnection from planet Earth if you're if you're away for a long time, do we can we still remain connected to our our families and friends and the rest of humanity here on, here on Earth um, the the positive in terms of physiology, I would argue that, we are perfectly adapted to zero G when we go up there and spend, because your body is very efficient. When you don't need the bones and the muscles as much anymore to hold you up, or you don't need the heart to pump as much blood, you don't need as much volume in your body, you don't need your heart muscle to work as hard, your body just takes care of it. So it's only when you reintroduce the body back to gravity that you have the problem. So I like to think of it when you go to into into space, your body adapts in a beautiful way. It's only when you go back and forth between the environments that you start to see these issues. Um you know people will say that they sleep really well in space, even though there's a circadian misalignment, that there is almost like they don't you don't feel your tissues. There's no you don't feel the mass of your tissues. So feeling weightless for some people is a feeling that enables them to sleep better. Um, so in terms of other positive effects of being in space. I think we need to do more science on this because I imagine that we will learn to be more resilient in terms of DNA repair, perhaps when we're exposed to more radiation. Um, Right now, people are focusing in as how much damage is radiation causing. But I think that because we are so adaptable. There's actually studies that have been done that show that if you pre-expose animals to radiation just a little bit, they become more resistant to a secondary exposure. So that's almost like priming you. It's almost like a vaccination of your body towards a stressor. You become more resilient. So I find it quite interesting to think about the body in space and how we can become our next version of ourselves.
0: Yeah, I, find, I i must say—I find that part super interesting. I, I follow a little bit on the side the whole sort of like longevity, you know, research. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading uh, sort of along the lines of what you were saying there. One of the things I read a while ago is was like an example of some like small Greek island and the local water source, which everybody's using on this island, is basically slightly radioactive. And the life expectancy on that island is apparently like statistically significantly higher than on on I other islands. So it's I a sort it of like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger type sort of uh, a casual like uh, idiom or um, i guess uh, it's called um, homesis as well sort of <laughs> it,
1: it, primes, it primes your defense mechanisms so that you you are uh, better able to do repair i find that very interesting that paradigm is very interesting yeah and is there,
0: so I guess talking about longevity, now you reminded me of another thing. Wasn't it the case that when they did the twin study with the Kellys that, um, I keep confusing who stayed on Earth, it was Mark who stayed on Scott who was in space, right? And like right. his his, tel- his telomeres lengthened or something like that?
1: Yeah, so the, the, the result is a little difficult to interpret. Um, okay. So- Essentially, it's it's hard to say what that means. The reason is it only looked at a specific set of white blood cells, okay? And so because you don't you can't take bits of all of him, It was in a specific subset of white blood cells that they saw the longer telomeres. The question is, did the telomeres elongate pre and post? or is it the subpopulation that had the long telomeres survived, whereas the others right. died? it's really hard to know what that means.
0: Okay. And I, I realize I should have explained this because it's a non-technical podcast. And please, please interrupt me if I say something very stupid. The telomere is basically the sort of what you call it, like set of beads at the end of a chromosome. and if-
1: They protect the end of a chromosome. And and the idea is that they're kind of the caps. So if the shorter your you your, your telomeres get shorter as you get older. Um, and with disease, your telomeres can get shorter as well. And so the the less telomere you have, the more pro- the less protective cap you have, the more likely you will have DNA damage. So aging and senescence, which is the normal death of cells that are too old that have done their thing, and it's time for them to go and and new cells to be renewed, it it, it correlates with telomere length.
0: Yeah, no, that's right. It strikes me as in this sort of area of longevity as well, there's probably so much more research we can do using space. So let's, you already started talking about just a moment ago about sort of like, you know, what's our next evolution as humans. So let's get 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 just slightly a little bit crazier. So do you think we'll ever do something like, you know, starting to edit some of our genes to make us more adapted for living in space?
1: Okay. Um There are definitely ethical considerations with this. Of course. But if if I just think of it as as an experimentalist um, we 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 have the ability to screen for a few things and and actually governmental astronauts um, will not will not allow the genetic screening for, for or the genetic analysis of them because they are very worried that something will be found and we we not with not very many genes can we do a, an absolute causality there's a handful when you could say, I see this gene mutated in this way, it will very, very likely cause this type of disease or, you know, the increased risk to it, right? Like BRCA genes, for example, with Mm -hmm. breast cancer is a good example, right? So it doesn't mean that you'll 100% get breast cancer, but you have a much higher risk. So so having a, a gene mutation that is something like that in an astronaut going into a high radiation environment would would give us a lot of concern right so um but astronauts and and NASA for example have been very resistant to looking at that we can we can look at other things for example like how likely are you to degrade medications in space because of your liver enzymes we could look at things like um, how likely are you to have issues with uh, blood clots in an environment like space? And so, when you start to look at those things, there's ways to counteract them, right? Like we can we can look at making sure we ca- we carry with us clot busters, or we make sure that we carry the right kind of medication for you that would work in space that your body wouldn't degrade. That's not, I'm not answering your question. I'm getting to it. I'm getting to it. So there's Mm -hmm. there's things that we can do on the genetics just from understanding personalized medicine. Right. Being able to tailor the medical kit we send for you or understand your particular risk based on your genetics. So the question you ask is, will we do genetic editing? Um, And that that's really it. It's absolutely feasible technologically. Biologically and genetically, it's feasible.
0: We're, we're doing it, right? I mean, there is drugs yeah. approved drugs on the market now, like Luxturna like for yeah. I forgot the they're, eye condition. It.
1: It's feasible. It's an ethical question. It's an ethical question, and it's one that society would need to solve. So, for example, if society said that going out to Europa, sending sending humans to Europa, is of prime importance to humanity's advancement, um, and humans need to go, and we we need to genetically modify the humans that will enable them to survive the trip and be able to to reach that society would have to be the one to say, this is okay to do. Um, and it's, it's feasible, but I, I'm certainly not one that, <laughs> that would be the one making the decision.
0: Yeah, yeah, it just seems like it's such a potentially interesting field, right? I mean, we're talking about radiation, right? And we have obviously microorganisms on Earth which are extremely radiation resistant. So maybe there's something, you know, to learn from the genome. I, I, I don't know. So, I at it so enough.
1: you know, I think a, a perhaps an ethically palatable approach is actually to genetically modify the microbes that we bring with us, and as you know, a lot of our health is. Is very much modified and greatly affected by the micro microbiome that we take with us. And in fact, the microbes that live in our bodies, on our bodies, can can influence how we respond to radiation, how we respond to disease or a virus, can respond to um, the certain foods, can affect our mental health. I mean, they're highly, highly tuned to our environment and can influence our health. It's been shown um, very clearly. And so I think a more uh, palatable and promising area is not to genetically engineer the human irreversibly, but actually genetically engineer the microbes that are going on my body that will make me more resilient in a space environment.
0: Very, very interesting. And so another question sort of, I was going to say out on the crazy end, but I, actually it's not crazy. I think it's a very pertinent question. So so as my listeners know, I'm one of those guys, I, I do think like humanity should go out and become multiplanetary, you know, and be on Mars and moon and everything. But there's so many people casually saying that. And then I'm always sort of slightly annoyed by the fact that at least I have not seen a lot of research on the question of, well, can we have kids out there? Because if you want to have, you know, if you want to build societies off Earth, at least in my mind, it's like the most human activity there is is having kids. And like, if it's otherwise, you just kind of keep bringing in new people, I guess, and they die and you keep bringing in new people. Right. But, you know, at least I have not seen a lot of sort of research on human ambiogenesis or even mammalian ambiogenesis. But maybe I haven't looked hard enough. Like, what what is the status There
1: there was just an article that came out um, about a company in the Netherlands that is looking specifically at um, reproduction and embryonic development uh, of mammals, starting with mice, but then eventually they want to look at human embryos in space. Um, And so there is a group, at least one group, and they have some investors that is interested in this. Um, I, I uh, was critical of their approach because they were looking at the viability of, of embryos by bringing them back. And I worried about the G forces bringing them back because the G forces are going to be very detrimental to the embryos. If, if they're not, it's too difficult to protect them and maybe they'll figure out a way to protect them on the way back, but G forces are going to be substantial. So, you know, unless you could do a soft landing like the shuttle. So right now Sierra space is the only company Mm. that's doing soft landings, but they're not flying yet. So, um, so That was my criticism of their experiments, but they're thinking about it. So I actually looked at this. I was part of the NIAC, which is the NASA uh, Advanced Innovation Concepts uh, Space Settlements Workshop. And I was leading the Human Settlements Biology Group. And we looked at specifically how one would have babies in space. You need gravity. You absolutely need gravity. Um, I don't think a 6G is going to be sufficient, but I could be wrong. I think it would be very, very... Uh, detrimental to embryonic development and pregnancy to live in zero gravity. So you would have to provide artificial gravity of some sort, which means you're now spinning, spinning a station. Now, if you were to spin a station and are able to create gravitational forces, I think there's a potential for a healthy pregnancy to proceed and normal, healthy embryonic development. So that's the possibility. Um, the other is if on the Mars surface, for example, um, you have uh, uh, essentially three eighths g. Uh, I don't know if that's sufficient. Maybe so. We could potentially in zero g start to create a uh, partial G capability where one could keep animals that are pregnant, for example, to see if if embryonic development um, can proceed normally and they could deliver. The problem with animal studies, particularly rodents, mice and rats, they are so exquisitely Exquisitely sensitive to stress, that oftentimes the pregnancies will not proceed just because of the stress. So it's really mm. hard to test that um, in in the current model that we have.
0: Interesting. Well, it sounds like another area we need to do much more much more research. What is sort of the highest? Um, how can I say this? Highest developed life form we have had pregnancies with in space, if any.
1: Um, well, mice and rats, I believe, were done. But again. It was I, I think the the stress of the space environment. I mean, think about it, you're taking an animal that doesn't know what's going on and now it's floating yeah. around. and you know it's 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 really hard to make any determination from those studies so
0: so generally speaking, beyond these sort of various areas of research we've already talked about, if if you had unlimited funding, like what what are some? Maybe exam- examples of research areas where the research isn't being done right now or not yet that you think, okay, somebody should really look at this?
1: Yeah. So um, I, I'm always about the applications on earth. For me, that is that is key. What we're currently building and we don't have enough money, we never have enough money, is an ability to track your health at all times, um, really assess your your overall body health at all times, non-invasively, and also be listening to the environment, right? So really create a personalized, holistic way of assessing your past, present, and then predict your future as you're going through different environments. And I want it to be in your pocket. I want it to be on your wrist. And I want it to have um, your genetic information. I want, it to, I want it to have your activity, your, you know, and, and we're almost there, right? There's a lot of wearables that do this, but something that integrates all of that and would do predictive analytics on how you're going to be and suggest, suggest how you might mitigate a potential medical crisis that could be coming around the corner. So to me, Prevention is everything, and it, it seems almost not pie in the sky enough. I think it's very much doable. It just needs some money to really make it happen. So we've we've begun that work. That's one area I invest in. The other one is my main concern is how I'm going to feed these people. So food is a major problem. We have not solved food in space right now. We're 100% uh, dependent on Earth resupply every one to two months, and we bring packaged foods to space. Some some fresh foods. Food production and supply chain is a problem, not just in space, but also in many places on earth. For example, Singapore, Middle East, where they can't grow food very easily. So um, I am very excited by... Uh, a field that has been kind of growing slowly, but I think is about to take off called engineering biology, which is the use of either microorganisms or cell-free systems to generate products that could in fact be used to make nutrients, vitamins, foods, food components, um, parts of of or components from medications, certain molecules that could go into really sustaining a human and do so on the spot, on in, in real time on the spot so that I don't have to bring anything with me. There is a company, for example, um, in Virginia called On Demand Pharmaceuticals. And it was started by a former um, uh, colonel in the army who was also a DARPA manager. And he had a supply chain problem when he was in theater and uh, in the battlefield and he had to operate and he needed medication. He couldn't get access to it. Even things that, you know, uh, are in great supply in, in, in the modern world, just getting access to medications that you need on the spot. So he started this company to make the, the, the um, building blocks of very common medications. And in fact, that became a huge issue during the pandemic because supply chains were a problem. Everything closed down in in China, closed down in India. A lot of these uh, uh, factories that make some of these uh, uh, building blocks from common medications shut down. So having the ability to generate not only food products, but also medications just in time is the next generation and that to me is really exciting because then you become a lot more self-sufficient you can live and keep people healthy anywhere on the planet and off the planet so
0: i think both of those are fascinating so let's start maybe in inverse order so with the sort of uh, in time or you know in situ in situ i guess production of for example food i guess that does that in your mind also comprise some of these things like um uh, you know, stem cell-based uh, meats, and I mean, you're from Israel, right? There's actually yeah. a prominent Israeli company, um, Alef,
1: Alef Alef Foods, Farms, uh, which sure. is just one of Alef hundreds, Farms. actually. And and I I actually tasted some uh, cheese, some cream cheese made by a company called Remilk. Again, one of many that are yeah. So what people don't realize is that uh, it's actually cleaner because the cells that they're producing is meat cells. It's not. It's not artificial in any way. It's made from a cow. It's it's cow muscle cells. And they can, in fact, uh, make sure that there's no hormones in there. There's no antibiotics that are needed. There's no genetically engineered anything. It's pure. Those cells are pure. And you would wonder, okay, that sounds really tough that it's just going to be all muscle. They can marble the the steak with fats that come from healthy plants so instead of having saturated fats from an animal that can you know make you have plaques in your in your arteries they could put in very healthy fats from plants so the steaks that you're eating are actually better for you and not only that it's so much more sustainable the amount of Water and landmass that you need, and and energy and nitrogen that that is needed to 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 make one cow is unbelievable. Mm. Whereas you could you could take that. I mean, they've done the calculations. I don't remember them off the top of my head, but you can generate so much more really healthy protein. And they're working on making it really tasty now. I wish I could have tasted that meat when I was there, but um, apparently. It tastes good. Um, and so I think that that is the future as well.
0: Yeah, it sounds like we may get even like a better version of a, healthier heavier version of a Wagyu beef, which is that that's like a dream. Yeah. <laughs> and coming back to the other thing you mentioned, the variables. So... That reminded me of a question. So, what, what is actually the current state of the art there? Like, how are astronauts monitored? Is it just like vitals plus maybe ECG, or is there something more sophisticated going yeah, on? Yeah,
1: they're not wearing anything all the time except for maybe an Acti watch, which may, basically just measures activity, sleep. Sleep and and awake cycles, uh, the current astronauts on the ISS, unless they are part of a research study, so it's not yet part of the medical requirements. And this is this is the problem. We need to transition some of these uh, research uh, protocols into medical use. So uh, people will will argue with it. They'll say, "Show me that it's actually." needed, right? Show me that I need this in a clinical capacity, in an operational capacity, not just on the research side. The problem is, is that we've never really needed to prevent because anytime they get sick, we just bring them back. So it's, this is what I mean by the forcing function. Once we go to a place where we cannot bring them back, that's going to drive operational programs to do that trade analysis, right because why would they send all these wearables and figure out how to integrate them in the spacesuits it's it's a it's it costs money to integrate them into operations. So right now the flight surgeons will tell you, I'll talk to my crew member if they sound okay, I can tell by their voice how they're feeling, you know and so, oftentimes that's good enough or they'll do, they do, there is a medical requirement. So once a month they undergo medical, uh, uh, like a medical exam. So there's certain things that they go through. There's a checklist that they check. So once a month they'll do a medical exam. And so they say that I don't need to track you all the time, but they're still in low earth orbit. They're still getting all the food they need. They're still protected from radiation. So, and the consequences of getting sick are not nearly as severe as once you leave low Earth orbit and you're exposed to radiation and all these other things. And so um, I think it's going to be the missions that are going to drive the operational changes in terms of continuous monitoring.
0: Gotcha. And so I think you already basically answered my next question because I asked you about sort of like dream additional R&D projects. And my next question would would be sort of what's going to be beyond R&D, sort of like, is there something more more practical closer to like the commercial side uh, we can do but frankly i think both of the examples you gave are like very real commercial use cases the variables and the um, yeah uh, and the sort um, of production so
1: the other as i could tell you about another um very exciting project um so i don't know if your readers or listeners have have um heard of this capability but um we we are very interested in in making uh avatars of each individual to really personalize medicine. And what I mean by that is not just a digital avatar that will have all your medical information and do predictive things, which I talked about earlier and track you in real time, but a real biological sample, it's called uh, organs on a chip or another word for it is, uh, is, um, uh, microphysiological organoid. systems, organoid system. Organoids are different. Organoids are, they're not the same as organs on a chip. Um, so, uh, but but they are like them, right? And so I can take a blood sample from you, Raphael, and isolate your stem cells. I can do that for any human, anybody, and isolate those stem cells. And then it's now become much more routine that we have learned how to take those stem cells and differentiate them into pretty much any organ we want. So we can recapitulate, maybe not all the functions of a heart, but a lot of them, that there will be beating muscles, there'll be contractility, there'll be even blood moving, there'll be vessel formation. We can generate a little miniature heart um, liver that would be Raphael's liver. And that liver will detoxify drugs, it will produce certain enzymes. We can even make little lung cells, you know, that will transport um, uh, uh, gases across a membrane. So one can start to see that I can build a little miniature body on a chip connecting all these organs so that they could speak to each other via molecules and hormones. Now, I've got this little organ on a chip uh, system that represents you, right? So before I send you to a deep space environment, I may want to see how your liver's doing, how your how your brain cells, how your how your liver cells are going to do uh, in response to the radiation environment. And not only that, I'm going to be able to test some countermeasures or preventative measures ahead of your trip so that I know if, if you have a susceptibility, say, for example, your liver is particularly sensitive to space radiation, let's try uh, statins or let's try you know, aspirin or different kinds of countermeasures to see if that helps. So that's the beginning of personalizing and preventative medicine in a real futuristic way. Now, that doesn't have to be just space. It could be you undergoing certain chemotherapies or certain drug treatments for multiple sclerosis or mental health conditions. So rather than you being the guinea pig as a human, we could start to do these tests in vitro outside the body. Um, And the FDA is actually now requiring a lot of the clinical trials to include a component which has organs on a chip. And I think that's really exciting. So we're actually investing in this area.
0: Yes. And so for for full disclosure, and some of my listeners may know that one of the hats I'm currently wearing, I'm the acting CEO of a company out of the University of Zurich, which basically um, grows organoids in microgravity and, and space. So this is why this is very Way close to my heart. Okay, and, uh, very
1: good. Yeah, so you you you've, and so you've it, also seen the light.
0: Absolutely. So it's kind of I guess you were talking sort of like using those uh, organoid chip systems on Earth to sort of like you know test um, astronauts and um for our company Prometheus does sort of like we grow the organoids in microgravity because we think we can grow much higher quality organoids than we can under one G conditions and then use those as biological models. And I, I guess that's sort of like a whole, that's like a whole nother really interesting topic, like stuff we can do in microgravity that can improve, let's say, the um, you know healthcare on Earth, right?
1: Yeah, so here's the thing. We have never really properly invested in infrastructure for scientific discovery in space. We haven't. The National Lab model, they were so driven by proving uh, that space is is commercially viable for drug companies and others, everybody went in with a hypothesis to test. Everybody said, okay, let me see if I can grow this tissue better. Let me see if I can crystallize these crystals better. Everybody went in with a, a specific question to ask. That's not the way you do discovery and innovation in science, as you well know you need to just play. You need to create a sandbox, a capability, put in space everything that our scientists can think of in terms of measuring and testing and building and growing and start to observe what is different in space. That is how we are going to make those tremendous discoveries that will lead to major advances in medicine on earth. It, you, you look at what the capability is right now, it's minimal. Even, even bringing samples back, we don't have an ability to bring samples back without them experiencing great G-forces. That's, that's just a simple example. So I'm really excited about some of these commercial low Earth orbit destinations because they are thinking about they're coming out, they're they're asking the the community, what do you want? What what kind of capabilities do you want that open-ended question is exactly how we're going to make those big discoveries
0: yeah and no, i agree with you it's a really exciting time right just, this is exactly what you're describing right now it's just so limited we basically here only have the iss right and i guess it's chinese space station now uh, in theory and the, the transport capability is limited, the ISS space is limited, and then uh, astronaut time is really limited and expensive. But all of these constraints should ease in the future. So I agree it's 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 a really exciting time. So Drew, as we're like winding down here um to the end of the podcast, how how can people get involved with Trish if they so desire?
1: Yeah, so um we are funded by US tax dollars and Grants that we give have to be given to U.S.-based universities and companies. However, anybody can be part of uh, our community. We run monthly meetings uh, where it's open to the public and we often have discussions and people participate. Um, we, there are, um, we have trainee opportunities that you could reach out. And we, in fact, we have a postdoctoral fellowship open right now. Um, and if you can find somebody to sponsor a visa for you if you're a foreign national um, in the. US uh, then then you can you can be funded by our Institute uh, we run workshops all the time they're open to internationals we in fact we have a lot of internationals participating um, and you know we also just recently uh, uh, hosted a uh, a, a working session on on our monthly called called how do you break into space health research and there were a lot of international people so we gave some ideas on how to get into it and that I think there's a recording of that on our website that people can find as well um, and so uh, we often invite people to to write papers we we do even communication internships um, so it doesn't have to just be science we, we right now we have three communications interns they' are learning how to communicate on the science effectively, because I think as scientists, we need to learn how to better communicate how things impact people on Earth and also help people in different disciplines connect the dots so that they can come in with a new approach of of addressing a problem. So there's lots of ways to engage. And NASA always says, it's not just the engineers that we need. We need, you know, the, the, the accountants and we need business people and we need publicists and we need you know we need all kinds of people to make space work so i hope that helps a little bit
0: but by the way i should have asked you earlier but how, how did you get involved with space life sciences how did you get this complete this
1: fluke <laughs> complete fluke i met somebody at a breakfast meeting and uh when the job uh became open. She invited me to apply. And I, I thought, gosh, this is once in a lifetime. If I I will kick myself if I don't try this. And, um, I, I've never looked back. It's been a tremendous, uh, unbelievable opportunity to to just play every single day I play because it's science um, and it's biology and it's technology and engineering and medicine and space and it just all comes together and it's just a wonderful place to be as you know. As
0: mm, I, I know very well I feel the same way <laughs> and so our, our last question on this podcast is always the same it's basically about favorite science fiction assuming you like science fiction. I think our, sure. in, 110 epi- in 110 episodes, we only had like one or two people who said they don't like science fiction. And then usually I don't know what to say next. But if you do, um, <laughs> what what are some examples like books or TV series, movies? Yeah,
1: so I'm going to date myself because I'm, I'm an old lady. I'm very, very old. But I actually did watch the original Star Trek, the original Star Trek series back in the 60s and 70s. And I actually had the hots for Leonard Nimoy as Mr. Spock. That's how old I am. Uh, And so... Star Trek always holds a very special place in my heart. I look at the episodes now, and they're like so corny, <laughs> so corny. And I kind of, you know, laugh at myself. But when I was a young kid, uh, I just thought that was the neatest thing. So I have to say that's still my favorite, the old Star Trek series.
0: And 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 all of them from the first one always have the the flight surgeons and uh, always have the medical element, which is which is interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and a lot of those came to be right the communicator you know the uh, we we almost have the tricorder i mean we're getting there um so i i think that it it really makes us think of we have to just imagine it and then we're going to create it and so for me the next big thing is can we can we do the replicator which is this synthetic biology right that i'm talking about
0: Exactly. Perfect place to end. We all want to replicate or I think probably all of our <laughs> listeners agree. Doreen, thank you so much. I think this, this is such a super interesting topic. Thank you so much for coming on. And we could go on for hours, I suspect, but just to talk a little bit about what's going on in this exciting field.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Rafael.
0: Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com.
1: I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.